Well, we've been going through a short series through Hebrews 11 and 12. I've thoroughly enjoyed studying it and preaching it. But before we cover today's verses, I wanted to point out that I did not plan to preach these verses on what our nation's celebrating today, which is Father's Day. I normally do not preach sermons that relate to any American calendar. Otherwise, I would be preaching a special sermon that feels like every other month or every month. I prefer to keep the attention on the text at hand of whatever books that we're going through, uh, especially because it's the attention remains on Jesus Christ, which is where the church should focus our attention. Now, that is not to criticize in any way those who may preach a topic that relates to a holiday or may have a Father's Day sermon. So please this, don't see this as a criticism. But the sermon today does relate as far as just so happens to the celebration. And today, as we celebrate fathers, for some, this is truly a good and celebratory day. It's wonderful. I know it's been wonderful for me already, and it's only going to get better because there's a roast waiting for me at home, and I could smell it this morning. For others, it is the day they wish they could avoid altogether, turn their phones off, turn the TV off, because for some, it is... Uh, their father abandoned them. They didn't grow up with a father. Others, their father was mean or abusive. For some, uh, wish that their fathers, or be, or, so for some, their, the, the Father's Day is this constant reminder that 365 days have gone by and they still are fatherless. They still do not have children of their own. And for some, their father to whom they loved and dearly and loved dearly has passed away. So this is just one more reminder of what they are missing this day. It is by the father's sovereign will that I preach this text this morning because I think it'll fit perfectly into any scenario that someone finds themselves in this morning. Happy, excited, or sorrowful. What we lack in our earthly relationships with our fathers, we will find comfort in our heavenly relationships, our heavenly relationship this morning with our father. And I will say my experience has been, and I've seen this and you probably have as well, for many, their understanding and relationship to God is often either helped or are hindered by the experience that they've had. The word father is a bad taste in their mouth. So when they think God as father, it does not bring joy and harmony into this picture they have of a relationship with God. And hopefully today, this morning, we can see from a biblical perspective our relationship to the father. And I pray and my hope is that you turned to joy and peace when thinking of this relationship. But before we can fully understand the text that we are covering today, these last few verses, we need to understand the biblical paradigm that is seen throughout all of Scripture. So this is going to be a little bit of an overview so that you understand what Hebrews is doing in this last section. The Bible is broken up in or broken down into two major categories. This shouldn't be shockers for you. The Bible speaks of law and gospel. 
We have already seen this in the reading of our text this morning. We've been singing about the gospel all morning. Most Christians today would recognize these words and most likely could say uh, that they have some kind of a concept that fits with them. Even I would say the majority of Americans who have a general idea of uh, religion. So if you were to ask them, what is the law as it relates to the Bible, they could probably point to something like the Ten Commandments. They may not be able to name them all, but they know the concepts. Uh, They will probably tell you that God requires you to live in a certain way, and he provides laws for how you should live. General idea. When you ask them to explain the gospel, you just hear what I would say, a weaker version of the law sprinkled with grace. You hear grace, but what follows it is law. I have a friend of mine who is uh, grew up as a Roman Catholic, and we have a lot of fun conversations. And I re- we recently recorded a podcast on the differences between Christianity and Roman Catholicism, and he asked me to send it to him. So he listened to it, and we had a conversation about it yesterday. And he was trying to explain what I was saying in his own words And the way I could describe it is that his understanding has definitely shifted where he understands he's not saved by the law, but it was just a weaker version because the the explanation was basically, uh, yeah, we're saved by grace, but I need to make sure that I keep trying my best, which is still law and not grace. So any form of obedience or any type of requirement at all is still law, even though it may not be measured up to the Ten Commandments. So just for sake of clarity, so we're all on the same page here, the gospel is the good news that everything God required in the law, Jesus provides in himself. This is good news. Everything that is required, perfection, which is what is required, we have in Jesus Christ. So the second part of the gospel is, is it's the good news that everyone or everything that you've broken in God's law, because we are told that the law is the schoolmaster, it's the mirror, it's that which shows you how much of a failure you truly are in the eyes of God. Jesus Christ played, paid for by his blood on the cross. We've been singing this and we confess this this morning. So this is great news, but it is only as great as it is compared to the law. Uh, We've used this illustration before, but if I walked up to you and said, here is the antidote to save your life, and I hand you a needle and a uh, a syringe, and you're like, great, I think I'll pass. If you don't feel the threat of life, you don't see it as a good news. Well, this is somewhat of what's going on here in our text. The law demands perfection. When it means by perfection, it's not our best effort, not better than the majority, The law demands perfection. Now, see, the law also, this is we sometimes we we hear perfection, and what it does not allow is practice. You do not practice to gain perfection, which was, you know, anybody who's ever played sports or played music, this is told to you. What is it? Practice creates perfection. Well, we all know that's not true because no one can be perfect. But we kind of feel it in this way. If, if you talk to someone who doesn't grow up in church but they have a religious idea and you invite them to something related to church, what did they tell you first? Well, I need to what? 
practice. I need to clean up my life. I need to have some form of religiosity before I step into. I can't tell you how many times people have told me being a pastor, well, God will strike me dead if I ever walk through your church. And I was like, well, then you don't know the God that I know. Because if he's going to strike you dead, he's striking me dead along with you. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. So we can feel this. It's an all or nothing reality of the gospel or of the law. And just to put this into the ridiculousness of sometimes we don't, we don't feel how offensive, we don't feel how crazy this should, you should look at the law and say that is, that is insane. Let me give it to you this way. Uh, this morning I was, uh, <laughs> I was prevented from speeding. And God knew I was using this illustration. I'm riding with my wife and I was like, what is it on Sunday morning that people want to go 10 miles below the speed limit? My wife thought I was joking. And then she looked at the speedometer and she goes, oh, you're not joking. No, I felt like the whole way here. This is why I was late. I blame it on someone else. It's never my fault. But according to the law, if we equate it to United States law, if you get caught speeding, which you... Don't ever get away with anything, according to God, because he knows all. But when you are caught speeding, you are then prosecuted at the full weight of the law, meaning that you will be guilty of all laws. And what is the law that we fear the most, which is the death penalty, anything that brings upon the death penalty. So a speeding ticket makes you guilty of the death penalty. So hopefully you feel the weight of the law. Offense against God is not a light issue. Now, what's even more dangerous than lowering the law, which is what we normally do. We try and make the law achievable. You should never assume you can achieve the law. You should never try to obey the law. That doesn't mean you shouldn't obey. We're going to get to that in a moment. But what's even worse than lowering the standard of the law to make it achievable or thinking that practice will get you to the point where God will approve of you. If you fail in one area, you fail according to all areas of the law, according to Christ. What's more dangerous to this is mixing that which is good and healing gospel and mixing it with the law. To tell someone that they are saved by grace, oh yes, it's a free gift of God, say this prayer, we've probably all, and if I had some of you raise your hands, how many of you said a prayer, and after you said the prayer, the next thing you were told is what was required of you. And if you didn't do what was required of you, then your salvation was called into question. That's mixing grace and law, gospel and law. The requirements of God's law do not change once you become a believer. That's what's crazy. It's not as if, okay, the law condemns you before you're a believer, and now the law is achievable now that you're a believer. Actually, the law stays the same. If you ever want to gain acceptance before God, which is why the law was given in Exodus, they were, they were, they were saved out of Egypt. We just sang this song. Remember when he, when he brought us out of Egypt, he brings them out and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you so that I will bless and protect you as my people. And for you to receive the joy of my presence, here is what's required of you. And it's a terrifying thing. What God said, if you want to be in my presence, this is what's required. 
And I would say many of us and many of you live in a constant fear of God because you look at your performance and see that you are not living up to the the expected standards that you've been told. This is how you live. Someone or some denomination has given you a set of rules that Christians must follow or salvation, your relationship with the Father, will be called into question. You live in the constant state of fear and guilt. Hope and rest are never words you would use to describe your relationship with God. Well, this brings us to our text here in Hebrews chapter 12. What the writer is calling them towards, these readers, these these listeners of the letter, is a change of perspective. How they see their relationship with God. As we read the following verses, I want you to pay close attention to what the writer is doing here. He is reminding them of how fearful they should be living under the law. Remember, this is what they want to do. They want to leave Christ and they want to go back under the law. And he says you should be a fearful, you should be afraid of this because you cannot be accepted under the law. So as he calls them to faith in Jesus Christ, he tells them this. Read with me verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message may be spoken to them. Please, they literally told God, do not talk to us anymore. It's too scary. That's what they said. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I trembled with fear. As you read these verses, the writer is recalling for them the scene, if you're not sure, of Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 and verse, uh, chapter 19 and 20. And it is truly designed to bring terror into the hearts and the minds of the reader. Look at the words that he uses to describe fire, darkness, gloom, this tempest, a storm. And as God is, is speaks, it sounds like the blast of trumpets and thunder. It is a terrifying scene. It was so terrifying as I mentioned already, they said, please, do Moses, do not allow God. You talk to God. <laughs> you deal with it. We don't want to deal with it. And of course, Moses' own response to this is, I, I trembled with fear. What you have to understand is what God was opening the door, the crack of the door. They didn't even see all of his holiness because if they did, it would consume them. God cracked the door open and let forth his holiness. And the moment they were experiencing that, it terrified them. And God said, I am so holy, so other. You are so vile that don't even let your animals come near. My presence is in this mountain. And if your animals touch it, they are violating me. And you are to kill those animals. This is a serious matter. 
So now this is the weight and terrifying reality of the law. And he only uses word pictures and quick mentions. He doesn't even need to reference all of Exodus. I'm going to go back to verse 18. And notice how he starts the whole scene. For you have not come to what may be touched. This is not the scenario you are facing right now. That is, the gospel is not something you possibly make the mistake of touching. Like in the scene in Exodus. He says this, look at verse 22. But you have come to the Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festival gathering, like celebration. The scene over here is terror, fear, anxiety. He says, this is not the potential of you messing this up and bringing this on. He says, what I am calling you to is this massive celebration. And they would know what Mount Zion is in reference to. It's in reference to the new heavens and the new earth. It's in reference to this glorious place of living. He mentions Jerusalem and there's these angels and there's this festival gathering. It's rejoicing. It's not fear. It's a party. So, And I also want you to notice that he does something. He's comparing the mount by which the law was given to the mount by which rejoicing happens, this new place where we come into the presence of God. So he's got the presence over here that will consume you, that's law, and the presence over here that will indwell you acceptably, that's gospel. So he's saying, you are not called into the presence of God where you might make a mistake. You're being called freely. And notice here the language he says, not to come near, not to stand by in distance of the mountain. He says, you are to come directly into the presence of God. Read the verse again, it says, But you have come to the mountain. You are there. You are in his presence. So our relationship with God has completely changed from fear and death to peace and life. The way he's describing it is that of one where you don't party if you're afraid. There's not the assembly of rejoicing if there's fear. Let's continue reading. Verse uh, 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned, uh, are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So these are just uh, ways in which he's describing all the inhabitants of heaven. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which he's referencing back to what happened in chapter 11, and even what you know of the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis. So as he's writing all of this, he's just kind of throwing all of these reasons for them to run to the mountain. So those to whom are surrounded by God, this inhabitants, and he's saying all of these people, the former saints of old, those in the Old Testament who believed and are now indwelling there, and you have all of the prophets, and you have all of the angels, and they're all standing there in the presence of God rejoicing. 
And then he makes reference to Jesus, which all of that's great. But the most important part, the thing he leaves, which is you always leave the best for last, right? He points out the role of Jesus as it relates to them in heaven. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Uh, men's and women's Bible study right now, we're learning about covenants. We're learning, we're going to be learning about the new covenant. Later this summer, I'm going to be doing a series on what in the world does he mean the mediator of the new covenant? But for the sake of this morning, for quick illustration, covenant literally means promise. And this promise was made between the Father and the Son. We reference this as the covenant of grace, the, the promise that was made before the foundations of the world, Ephesians chapter 2, that God set out to save sinners and He commissioned the Son to be the righteous requirement and the payment for sins. So he says that Jesus is the mediator. He is the one who goes between you, who the covenant is made with, and the Father, who's keeping the promise, who's keeping the covenant. And then he says this, And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Read this to you. I find it helpful. The idea of blood speaking is not common. And there is undoubtedly a reference to Genesis 4.10, which is where Adam was, I'm sorry, where Abel was killed. And it says that Abel's blood cried from the ground for vengeance of his killer. So he's making reference, again, these are people who would understand their Hebrew scriptures. His blood opens up a way into the holiness. I'm sorry, speaking of Jesus' blood, a better word than that. His blood opens up a way into holiness for people. Abel's blood sought to shut out the wicked, and Christ's blood, as it covers us, frees us and draws us not into the vengeance of God. What does he say? It draws us into the love of God. So he gets done. He's comparing, do not look to the law, which you want to go back to, as something that is good. It is bad and something to be afraid of. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's saying, why do you think that even when Jesus was here or during the time of Moses that they couldn't escape the condemnation of God? What makes you think you can escape it now? Verse 26, At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but all, but also the heavens. This phrase, once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This idea of if you have something in a box and you shake the box so that everything comes out so you can replace it with something new, this is the image he's giving. That God is going to remove all that which is vile. He's shaking it. Therefore, let us be grateful, verse 28, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship worthy, sorry, worth reverence, with reverence and awe, For our God is a consuming fire. Now, I can't tell you how many times people have used those last two verses to have you be afraid of God. 
How insane is that? You are not to be afraid of God unless what? You are going to approach Him as your own capacity of obeying the law. Now, it is out of respect. Obviously, you cannot read Exodus 19 and 20 and think, huh, God seems powerful. (laughs) It's terrifying to see how humans responded to God, to see His glory. And yet the writer says this, that you are not in relationship with God like that anymore because you have a new covenant, a new promise from God that through Jesus Christ, all the blessings of heaven, all the, the gifts and joy and hope and mercy and kindness, all of it are yours in Jesus Christ. So I want to leave us with just two primary points of thought or application as we think about the end of this chapter. And here's the first one. The perspective that we have been called to here in this ending of the, of the chapter is rest. There's nothing left to do. You'll see here, he does not mix law and gospel. He says, here's law. It's terrifying if you don't live up to it. And here's gospel. And remind you that Hebrews 12, 18 and following are not disconnected from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. For Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of your faith. And what are we called to? Faith alone in Jesus Christ makes you acceptable in his, in his eyes. So the perspective of the writer is, please, dear saint, rest. There's nothing left. The second thing he says, the perspective that must change is peace. We are the children of God now, not his enemy. Remember the picture. He shows you, this is what it looks like to earn righteousness before God. They said, God, please don't ever talk to us again. It's terrifying. Over here, you're in the presence of God, celebrating Him. In His presence. Outside of His presence. So there is no reason to have anxiety because you have peace. And the last perspective He's giving them is this. It's hope. And the hope, which I love to even just use the language of the writer, that cannot be shaken because it is not held by us. There's also a promise that's being given here because um, the writer of Hebrews is actually writing to people underneath persecution. They're, they're, they're feeling the weight of the sin in their life. There's sickness, there's pain and persecution. He is saying, when God is finished... All suffering, all pain, all vileness, all evil and wicked will be removed. He says, will be shaken, will be shaken out of this world. Everything, my wife and I have gone to bed uh, multiple times over the last few months. And the last thing she says to me is, I just can't wait for Christ to come back. Because what we are experiencing now is not the way we have been designed to live. That sense of anxiety, that sense of, or you feel unsettled. And we try really hard here to create a sense of peace and rest. But what the writer says here is that you'll never truly find it here and you will never find it outside of Jesus. But we do have the promise that God is going to come and make new. In this illustration, he's saying, I'm going to shake and remove all that is vile and what remains and what I replace it with will only be what is pure and holy. So that's the perspective he's giving us. And in turn, this is what we should be, what should be our 
our primary focus, which we can see applied in our own church context. What our primary focus is this one, what Christ has done for us. He's covered our sins. He's earned for us all of the required obedience to the law on our behalf. This is why all of our sermons and our singing and everything we do as a congregation is we want to exalt the work of Christ. That doesn't mean what we do is not important. Of course it's important. But it is not what motivates us. It's not what keeps us going. I can tell you right now, I have enough sin in my own life this last week that would cause me to fall into deep depression. It's only the gospel that brings me out of it. So we must Focus our attention on what Christ has done for us. The second thing is what Christ is for us. He tells us here in the text that He is our mediator. That He goes between the Father and us. Which also makes Him our comforter. I know that we haven't covered all of Hebrews 7, or all of Hebrews, and maybe we will after this. But I don't know if you understand that when it says he's our mediator, that Jesus is in constant prayer to the Father on your behalf. This is what the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, meaning that because Christ is our replacement, he is the one who died and lived for us, and now he's the mediator. He says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Another way of saying that is he is able to save the worst you can think of. The worst you can think of. Apparently today, that could be all kinds of things. There's all, there's stuff all over social media that basically uh, is, is horrifying. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh, he can save to the uttermost, the worst that you can think of right now. Those who draw near to God through him. He clarifies how they are saved. And how is it they are saved? By faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, and then he doesn't finish. He says this. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He lives to constantly be going to the Father on your behalf. Even when you fail to repent, even when we fail to see how wretched we are, the Father sees your sin, the Son comes and intercedes on your behalf, and it says, it's covered. It's covered. If it feels unfair, now you're feeling just how crazy the gospel is and why people want to add the law in there. No, no, John. No, you got to confess all your sins. That's impossible. This is why we have a mediator for the sins we don't even are, that we're not even aware of. So we see Christ and what he's done for us. We see Christ, what Christ is for us. And lastly, what Christ will finally fix on our behalf, which I've already mentioned. He makes all things new. So the weight that you are feeling this morning, and if you're tired of the circumstances, things that are outside our control, things we can't even fix, and that's on top of all of the pain and suffering before COVID ever hit or before racism ever hit, before any of this ever hit, 
We were already dealing with, I feel like, a max capacity of pain. And now what this does is it causes you to even more say, there's nothing in this life that can ever be better than what I have in Christ. Ever. If you think at the highest moment of your life, maybe it was at the time that you got married or your first child, whatever it is, that is but dirt compared to what we have and will have in Jesus Christ. And this is where the writer of Hebrews is trying to lead his readers. And so this morning, my encouragement is, I know, even as I preach this to you, I can see that it's supposed to be glorious. And yet, as Paul says, we look through a dark glass. Like we know what's on the other side of there. It's kind of that blurry image. It looks and smells good, but we can't see it yet. And the longer we look at it, the more it becomes clear, but we will not fully see what it is. And, and Paul says to the dear church, he says, even though you have not seen him like I have, you believe in him. Blessed are you. And the encouragement to you as church, if you have the smallest amount of faith, the smallest amount of faith, you are blessed of God and you have all of his promises. He does not release the hope and joy and promises based upon your level of faith. I love saying this because it's true. You know how much faith saves you? According to the Bible, any faith, any faith, if you believe, you are saved. So the hope this morning is that you hear these words and never, ever, ever attempt that God loves you or accepts you or will protect you or will bring you safely home to his presence based upon your performance. Because if it was up to you or me, None of us would make it. We're not good enough. Well, let's get ready for communion. As we get ready, I just want to point out, we have several visitors here this morning. Uh, We take communion every single week. We believe that God encourages and strengthens our faith through the preaching of His Word, what we just experienced, but also as the gospel is ministered through the means of the table and also baptism, which we're going to have soon. We do not believe that the table saves anyone. We also do not believe that you must be worthy in order to come to the table. What makes you worthy to eat as a child at the Father's table is that you are His child. And I just told you how you become a child of God. It's by any faith in the gospel. And so if you are here this morning and you are trusting in Christ to be your Savior, your mediator, that which will prevent you from being condemned and that which allows you to be into the presence of God forever, if you believe that by faith, then we'd encourage you to strengthen that faith, to trust in that more by participating in the table. And this illustration that's given to us by Christ, he literally says, eat, this is my body, drink, this is my blood. What he is saying is the way that you sustain yourself spiritually in this life is by feasting on me. And so as we drink and as we eat and as we receive the gospel, we do so knowing it strengthens our faith. If you are confused by that at all, if you're not sure you understand the gospel, or if you know that you're not a believer, we encourage you not to participate because we don't want you to be confused by that. And we'd love to talk with you afterwards. 
Um, after I pray, what we're going to do is we'll start uh, from the front and work our way back. We're going to go over to this table, and my wife will hand you uh, two cups. One, the, the bread will be on the bottom, and the juice will be on the top. Uh, please go back and be seated. And then once everyone has made their way uh, through, then Anthony will lead us in our time of the table. Let me pray. Our Father, we know that if the Word of God is true, there is not a human in this room who finds their acceptance because of what they have done this morning. Lord, it's hard to allow that to seep in because we're so geared on self-righteousness. But God, you condemn to hell the self-righteous as much as the racist. Everyone is in equal need of grace because they're all equally guilty if they have not perfectly lived up to your standards. So God, we sit here as recipients of grace Lord, humble us as we look to your glorious love that is unconditional. You do not love us more because we have behaved well, and you will not love us less. Lord, help this be our motivation to glorify and worship you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.